encourage you and support you. Oh, so you give it up for him again. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, God is doing some amazing stuff. Amen. Uh, hey, we are so grateful for West Des Moines Open Bible. Uh, you guys support my ministry that I'm a part of, which is called Training Leaders International. Uh, again, my name is Aaron Jameson. In case you missed that, I'm married to Megan. She had to stay home because she was sick today. I have four beautiful kids. Corinne is 11. She's downstairs taking care of our youngest, Miles, who's one and a half. And then Aubrey is 10 and Genevieve is five, and they're over there. Uh, so Training Leaders International, just a quick synopsis for you. What do we do? We train pastors. We train leaders internationally. <laughs> and, uh, and we also train international leaders here. And so that's, that's my focus. Um, I just had a workshop on Thursday and Friday of this past week here in West Des Moines. Amen. Isn't that great? And uh, we, we got to train some uh, African pastors that are here in Des Moines. They're faithfully serving God. They have congregations and they take the gospel back to Africa, to their home country often. Uh, they want to go and train up pastors in their home country. So they always have a heart for um, their country. A lot of times that's Liberia and Congo. Those are uh, really uh, pastors that are here in Des Moines. We have a lot of Liberian pastors and Congolese pastors. So we bring them together in a room for two days. We study a book of the Bible. We pray together, and we go out renewed in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one update for you guys. Uh, Training Leaders International said, hey, Aaron, you know, we know you love what you do, but uh, we think you should get some more cross-cultural experience since you're a missionary. And I said, where do we go, you know? And they said, uh, we think you should go to Brazil. So starting in July through November for five months, I am going to take my family to Brazil. Yep. So <laughs> praise the Lord. Uh, we get to partner with a ministry called Preach the Word down there, and they're going to take me under their wing, and they're going to tutor me, and I'm going to learn from them. It's going to be an internship, and they're going to send me out into Brazil, uh, and they're going to have me teach and train pastors with them in Brazil. So yeah, praise God for that. Amen? So yeah, so I want to I wanna bring a word to you guys today that I think is, is fitting. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians and also Isaiah, but... Uh, if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 and put your finger there, we're going to start there. Ephesians chapter 6. We're looking at the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Uh, we just sang a song that said, you're the God who fights for me, Lord of every victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. So if you're the God who fights for me and you were in Ukraine right now, how would you feel? Okay, let's, let's imagine that we are in Ukraine, that we're Ukrainians. Have you imagined what it would be like if Ukraine or Des Moines was under attack? How would you feel? Would you run and hide? Would you stand firm and face the enemy? Uh, one resident of Kiev, her name's Tatiana, she said, I don't want to leave, but it is completely dangerous to stay. So it's danger or leave. 
And another, another woman, Tamara, responds to the CNN news correspondent. She said, it's not about being brave. It's my city. It's my hometown. It's my homeland. It's my country. And I'm not the one who should leave. It's the Russians who should leave. And they will leave. And I'm not going to leave before they do. When, she, when the, the correspondent asked her, well, I mean, aren't there a lot of people that are leaving? And, and do you think there are more people like you that are staying? She said, I'm not thinking that. I know that. They're staying. Yes, some are leaving. But many are staying. So what would motivate you to stay? In the face of grave danger, what would motivate you to stay? What would help you to stand securely in your place and face the enemy? If you knew that victory was certain, that your side would win, that the enemy would be defeated, that all you had to do was stand firm, would you do it? What else would motivate you? This is what our passage is about today, church. That's what it is. These are our marching orders from Paul in Ephesians 6. The apostle Paul is like addressing his army of troops. He's like the commander. And here's what he has to say to the church in Ephesus. Let's read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. What's the purpose? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand your ground, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying, the sword of the Spirit is for praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We just did that. And also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us a word in this text today and I pray that by your spirit you would move in our hearts, that you would affect us as a church, to stand firm. Speak to us, encourage us, motivate us now by your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
So let's break this down a little bit. What is Paul saying to us? Well, at the very least, he's saying six things. One, we're in a war. (laughs) Christian, if you didn't know that, you need to wake up. We're in a war. The word struggle, we struggle, not against flesh and blood, was used for battles or challenging conflicts and contests. We're in a struggle. Number two, we need to be strong in the Lord in this war. Number three, we have an enemy and he tells us how he attacks us. Yeah, we know his schemes. We know his strategy. Number four, we have armor and we need to put it on. Number five, we need to stand against the devil and the evil spiritual powers. And number six, we have a response. And that's to pray, pay attention, and proclaim. Pray, pay attention, and proclaim the gospel boldly. Okay, our, our passage has two parts here. First is verses 10 through 13. It's, it's the main ideas that Paul's getting across. He's saying, first, hey, guys, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Put on God's armor. Withstand the enemy. That's it. How do we be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? How do we be strong in God's mighty strength? I'll tell you how, Christian. You put on his armor. That's that's why, that is how you're going to be strong in the Lord. You put on his armor. Now, I'm going to tell you what this means in a second. How do we do this, right? Well, then he explains that. In verses 14 all the way to verse 20, he's explaining what this is and how we do it. He's describing our armor allegorically. He's describing it and he's adding things to it. He's talking about it. So first... Stand firm in God's armor in Christ. Let's take a closer look. Paul is emphatic in the beginning. He repeats himself to get his point across. Stand, strength, might, armor, armor, stand, be strong. Paul is saying that the way to obey the command to be strong is by putting on the armor of God wants to conclude this magnificent letter to the Gentile church in Ephesus like a commander is addressing his troops, as I said. And I actually doubt that he, he's looking at a Roman soldier. Some people think this, but I kind of doubt it. I think that he, he's writing this from prison, but he's also got the imagination of Isaiah. And we're going to go there. He's got the book of Isaiah so filled in his mind. The word of God is so soaked in his heart that he is thinking biblically. And he's writing to the church that there is so much that they have to be grateful for. So much that they have. The biggest question for me surrounds the armor of God, right? You guys think about this? Like, what is it? (laughs) What does it mean to put it on? Okay, so let's just take a look. This is the second part. What is the armor? There are six pieces of armor. 
six pieces of armor, and they're listed from the inner garments to the outer garments and ends with a sword. The inner garments, the, the word belt of truth is his first one. It's actually more like the loincloth, um, kind of like the underwear. So he's starting, on, he's starting with what you put on first, okay? When we put on a belt, it's after our pants. But that's not, this is different. This is a different culture. We're starting with your undergarments, and we're moving to the outer garments. What do you need first, Christian? Truth. <laughs> but, but if you know your allegory, you're still correct. Okay? Amen? All right. We still, we need truth. We need truth. Now, as a Christian, you are built up in the truth. You have the truth. Number two, you have righteousness. You have the breastplate of righteousness. And you've, you've already been shod or shooed with the feet of the gospel of peace. In a war, what do you ultimately want? Peace. You have faith now, so take it up. You are saved, so take it on. You have the spirit which is the word of God. Now, usually we don't put those two together. We don't think of the Holy Spirit as being the word of God. When we think of the word of God, we usually think of the Bible. But Jesus is the word of God. And if we know the Trinity, the triune God is three in one. He is the spirit, father, spirit, son. Christian, you have the triune God of the universe in your hands. Take it up. Now see, all through Ephesians, we don't have time to go through this, but all through Ephesians, Paul has been talking about truth and righteousness and salvation and gospel and peace and faith. He is so full of all these truths of salvation that he just can't help himself but go to this analogy of the armor. You see, in, from chapter 1 to chapter 6 of this letter, Paul has been telling the Ephesians that Jesus is the word truth, that the truth is in Jesus. Therefore, they should speak the truth. Speak truth to one another in love because the truth is in Jesus and you are in him. Number two, he's been telling them all about righteousness in Christ. That in Christ, by faith, they are holy and blameless now. They've put on the new man, the new self, in true righteousness. This is chapter 4. Number 3, they've, they've got the gospel, the good news. And Paul's a minister of that gospel. And what does the gospel do? It unites Jew and Gentile. It unites rich and poor. It unites people that would never have a reason to get together. And it proclaims to the world that there's something greater here. That there's a love that conquers death. And it proclaims to the spiritual realm that they are defeated. That the spiritual disobedient powers are defeated when they see a unified church in love. But the same author, Paul, 
also writes about the armor in a couple other places. Did you know this? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, you don't have to go there. He calls the breastplate a breastplate not of righteousness, but of faith and love. And then he calls the helmet the hope of salvation, not just the helmet of salvation. So he moves things around a little bit. And in Romans 13, he tells us to put on the armor of light. Not the armor of God, but in, in Romans 13, it's the armor of light. Why? Because he's contrasting it with the works of darkness. What is your armor? It's your good deeds in Romans 13. The works of darkness, we know what they are. Right, sober soldiers? We know what they are, sexual immorality and quarreling and addiction and jealousy. But he adds, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same word for put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, Paul. Aren't you writing to Christians in, in Rome, in Romans, and, and in Ephesians, aren't they already Christians? Why should we put on the armor of God or put on the Lord Jesus Christ if we're already saved? Why would Paul tell them to put on the Lord Jesus Christ if they already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit yoked in eternal security by the irreversible seal of God? Because this is the Christian life. What is the Christian life? It's a battle. It's a battle. And I think most of us know this. On one hand, Christians are in union with Christ by grace through faith, saved to never sin again. Amen? And yet, what do we do? We struggle. Christians still sin. They still become enamored with the works of darkness. They still wander off and backslide. And I would say, note, when a Christian wanders off for good and turns their back on Christ until their dying day and they never repent, they were never saved. They were never truly born again. They would be classified as a wolf in sheep's clothing. We can be deceived for decades believing someone is real. And this should drive us to pray as Paul soon uh, says. Therefore, wandering sheep need to be reminded who they really are in Christ. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, I think, is like putting on a police uniform. Okay, I'm not a police. But the uniform doesn't make the police a policeman. The uniform reminds him who he is. The uniform reminds everyone else watching who he is. Who are we in Christ? Put on your uniform. So we can't really press his analogy too far because he swaps things around. But the armor is to be taken as a whole idea of our identity, our union with Christ. The truth is that Christ has won and his cosmic powers are vanquished. The righteousness is possible today. Your righteousness 
is possible today because of Christ's righteousness in you. You are holy and blameless in the Father's sight. His smile is never removed from you. Do you know this? This is good news. Your peace in this war was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's gospel. That's good news that you can put your feet in. <laughs> your faith is secure because it's given in Christ. Through the eyes of faith, this truth, this righteousness, this gospel is enough to snuff out the flaming darts of the evil one. The fountain of the gospel douses the darts of the devil. Your salvation is secure in Christ, more sure than the rising of the sun each day. And your spirit is indwelt by his Holy Spirit, who is the triune truth of God. So what does it mean? What does it mean for you today? How does putting on Christ help me or you to live the Christian life? So to understand this a little more, we're going to dive back in briefly to Isaiah 59. If you want to keep a finger in Ephesians, go with me to Isaiah chapter 59, if you can. If you want, you can listen along. Starting in verse 14, Isaiah 59. I think Paul is thinking through Isaiah. He, he, the, Isaiah writes, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. That's probably how the Ukrainians feel. For truth is, has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. It's all corrupt. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Okay, so if you're, if, you're, if you're walking in evil, you're doing what everyone else is doing. This is a corruption. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Who's going to intercede for us? Then his own arm brought him salvation. This is God. And his righteousness upheld him. This is Christ. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. There it is. And a helmet of salvation on his head. Who did this? God did. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The passage goes on to talk about how he saves his people who repent. And it says at the end, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. These are beautiful words. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your children or out of the mouth of your children's children from this time forth and forevermore, says the Lord Almighty. If Paul knows his Old Testament so well, as I think he does, he's thinking about this new covenant in Christ and how God's coming to save his people and how Christ, being God, takes vengeance for his people. But how? How does he do it? Do we have to fight alongside him 
No, Psalm 35 says, God will contend with those who contend against you. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't, don't take my joy away from me, God, God says. I'm going to do it. Romans 12, 19. Leave it up to him. Revelation 12. Do you guys like Revelation? I actually love the book of Revelation. The more I read it, I don't totally understand it, but it's supposed to be a call for the endurance of the saints. It's supposed to be some sort of encouragement. And I'll tell you what, it's encouraging to read about Jesus defeating the devil. Romans chapter 12 says there's a cosmic war, but it's over. It's over. Done. The dragon, the devil, Satan, has been thrown down or conquered. And then in verse 11, we read that believers in Jesus have conquered with Christ, and they've conquered Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What is this testimony? How can it be so powerful that it defeats Satan? What is your word for him today? It's the testimony of Jesus. What is that testimony? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're done, Satan. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered sin. Christ has conquered the rebellious spiritual cosmic forces in the world. They're here. And Christ has conquered the rebel nations that will never repent. And Christ has conquered the devil. He's just a disobedient angel. All has been won by his conquering on the cross. How else is Jesus described in Revelation? In chapter 19, he's called faithful and true. He's riding on a white horse and he has a what? He has a sword. That's the sword of the Spirit. And he is called the word of God. And from his mouth, this sharp sword comes to do what? Strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now that's not just Russia. We're talking a cosmic salvation. We're talking peoples of every tribe and tongue who do not repent they will be brought to justice, which should make us weep and proclaim the gospel boldly. God is a God of justice, and it is beautiful and good and true. So let's, let's wrap this up. We battle the cosmic powers together by the victory of Christ. And there is some sense in which we do battle flesh and blood, I think we should all think of ourselves as sober soldiers. You know? Come on. Amen? Romans 8.13 says, If you live by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we certainly wrestle flesh and blood. But Paul says, no, we don't. That's not our ultimate enemy in this warfare. That's not the ultimate one. Yes, we have sin indwelling us. But the war is bigger than that. I think that's what he's saying. 
the whole letter about, of Ephesians is really about our cosmic salvation in Christ. It's not just you and me and Jesus in the clouds. It's bigger than that. From the very beginning of the letter, verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Heavenly places. Then a little farther down in verse 10, he says, the salvation plan is meant to reconcile not just sinners to God. It's not just sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's to unite all things in him. All things. And what does he say those things are? Things in heaven and on earth. It's a cosmic salvation. He introduces the devil in chapter two. He calls him the prince of the power of the air. Does he really have power over the air? No, he's, he's in the air. That's his realm. That's where he'll stay. He's just a thief in the night. And then in chapter three, Paul says that the mystery of the gospel was, was revealed to him so that he could preach to the Gentiles a profound truth. Through the church, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will be silenced. That's, that's chapter three. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is, this is not humans. This is the disobedient powers that are under Satan. Rulers and authorities. Where did we see that? We saw that in chapter six as well. It's the same words. So what does he mean? The church, a Jew and Gentile united assembly is united to proclaim something to the world and to the watching cosmic powers. What are they proclaiming? The victory of Christ. The love of Christ. That we will reign with him forever. That we are victors in Christ. And that the disobedient powers will be vanquished. And we will even judge angels. Christian, who do you think you are? You're so much more than you think you are. The mission of the church is to carry this banner of truth that we are united in the victory of Christ. So to, to wrap up here, it kind of reminds me of a, a scene in Harry Potter. Now I'm going on a stretch, but any Harry Potter fans out there, maybe you don't read it, it's okay, all right, all right. So at the end of the second book, all right, the Chamber of Secrets, Harry has to face the, the one who should not be named, and that's Voldemort, kind of the Satan figure, and a giant snake called a basilisk. I mean, I can barely take it. And he, if he looks the, the basilisk in the eye, this giant snake, he'll die. Just looking him in the eye. Okay, so... Plus, to top it off, Harry's lost his, his only weapon that he has, his magical wand. Uh, Voldemort is holding it, and Harry is disarmed and doomed, right? No! Somehow, a magical bird called a phoenix comes to rescue Harry by blinding the eyes of the basilisk so that he can't see him, and Harry escapes narrowly. I mean, you, you, you can't make this up, uh, although she did. And, 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 then, and then a magical sword appears right in the moment that Harry needs it so that he can 
kill the snake. This is the Christian life. We are so weak, it looks like we're doomed. We're not. There's a huge difference. And let, let me tell you what the difference is between Harry Potter and us, okay? We tend to look at that story and say, well, Christ has given us the spirit and the Bible, yeah? So we can fight the devil. Hold on. We tend to put ourselves in the story as the hero, like Harry Potter, who has to slay the dragon and get the girl and yada, yada. We tend to think that it's up to us to fight evil. But we forget that the devil and his cosmic powers are defeated. They're done. So we don't really need to suit up every day and put on our armor. I know it's, it's cliche, but this isn't really a manual for exercising demons. Notice that Paul doesn't even command the Ephesians to swing the sword. <laughs> the sword is the only offensive piece of armor, and the rest of if it is defensive. Instead, we put the sword to use in our prayers and supplications by the strong name of Jesus. Amen? Amen? This is the paradox of the Christian warfare. We attack, get this, we attack by standing firm. Okay? That's our attack. Our offense is our defense. James, oh yeah, you guys read James? He doesn't say, attack the devil and he will flee from you. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. Why? Why? Because Jesus is playing our offense and our defense. We're on the bench. We're cheering him on. There's a catchy song, you might know it. When the devil bring up your past, you bring up his future. I think we can bring up his present too. Now that's a reason to cheer. Our cheering moves us back and forth with, between praise and prayer and proclamation if we're paying attention. But what if our prayers are all dried up? I know. Let's be real. What if we don't open our mouth to bo boldly speak truth into the darkness? What if we're half asleep? Okay? What if we're not keeping alert what would Paul have us do then? Are we second rate? No. Go back to the beginning and you do it again. We end here. We need to remember who we are in Christ. Believe it or not, even if your prayer life is all dried up, Jesus still loves you. You're still indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You still have your armor if you're in Christ. So let me end with this. Pray, pay attention and proclaim. Pray for all believers everywhere. We just did it. Pray the words of scripture, which is what Paul tells us to, to do in verse 18, actually. That's sword of the spirits for your prayer. And when your prayer life is dead, like mine is more than I'd like to admit it, persevere. Persevere. Pay attention. Number two, pay attention. Don't be caught off guard. We can be caught off guard because we either think that the spiritual forces are never going to touch us. Or we can be caught off guard by having everything mixed up in our mind, thinking that Satan's everywhere, he's going to get us, and he's all, he's, no. Remember, he's one guy, and he's not everywhere present like God is. He roams the earth. That guy doesn't know what he's doing. 
He's lost. Okay? He can only be in one place at one time. Proclaim this truth to others. That's it. Three. Proclaim it. I mean, Paul. He's the apostle Paul. He's asking for prayer to proclaim boldly. He's human. Right? We are ambassadors of the deep truth. The deep truth that has been hidden and unknown for millennia before Christ. And now we know it. What is this truth? We know some deep things. That Christ indwells his people by his spirit. That we are in union with Christ. That the devil is done. That the war is over. How can we yawn at the gospel? How can we? We need to see the beauty of the gospel. Especially how great are the riches of his grace in kindness toward us who believe. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for West Des Moines Open Bible Church. I pray that they would stand firm in your truth. I pray that they would all walk out of here today knowing who they are in you, Lord Jesus. That they would put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would remember who they are in Christ. That it's not just their armor, but it's you, God, that is protecting them. You who are our armor. This is a glorious truth. God, you have given us truth you speak the truth about us. The devil is a father of lies. Lord Jesus, you have given us righteousness. You have saved us by your gospel, which creates peace between us and those who once thought us enemies, between rich and poor, between upper and lower and middle social classes. All the differences we can come up with are now abolished by the death of your son, Jesus. And Lord God, you've given us faith. You've given us salvation. And you've given us the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, help us to not be caught unawares. Help us to pray in the spirit, paying attention and proclaiming your goodness to a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. And can we thank Aaron?